Welcome in to another edition of the Way Too Loud Podcast. As you can only assume, and from the title of this episode, we, the five cousins, are just sad. We'll go ahead and off the top disclaimer alert for the young children out there listening to this podcast. There might be, probably will be, cuss words flying throughout because Tennessee Volunteers and the Florida State Seminoles are utter trash. So we will just kind of preface this off the top that we will be cussing. It will not be a G-rated podcast, and I will not be going back and bleeping this because I am fed up with a program, and the program that doesn't give me any effort, I'm not going to give them any effort talking about them. So we have all five cousins here, John, Chip, Charles, Richard, and myself, the host, Jack Noonan. Not even going to ask how everyone's doing either because we all know we're awful, and we all have just been beaten down this weekend. A great Labor Day weekend. Should be great. Just out grilling at the pool, watching the first weekend of football, and already the season's over before September even starts for the Tennessee Volunteers. Florida State, I guess, has a little bit of chance to get back because our Boise State is decent, but the Tennessee Volunteers season ended on August 31st, 2019. We'll start, I'm going to segment this one. We'll start with the Tennessee Volunteers and how we think about them and just a complete, here it is, bitch fest we're going to have about this team and just... Pretty much, I'm, I know I'm going to be losing my mind because I'm already wanting to start screaming, but we'll try to, for the audio purposes, not scream too, too much. Um, we're going to segment this into kind of, well, maybe just around like the p- different parts of the game that I felt that we just need to talk about and highlight just how bad of a job it was. And we will start first, I guess I should say, if you haven't seen the game, if you didn't see the game, you, first of all, you probably aren't listening to this podcast, but... The Georgia State Panthers, yes, the Sun Belt team, Georgia State Panthers, defeated the Tennessee Volunteers, yes, the SEC Tennessee Volunteers, 38-30 to in Neyland Stadium. This is the first home loss on opening weekend since, I believe, 1983. And they were just completely got their shit kicked in the whole game. Georgia State outplayed them. It wasn't a fluke like the LSU-Troy uh, game. It wasn't like a crazy one-off Hail Mary type thing. We got our shit kicked in the whole game. So I'm going to send it over to Chip, and we'll start with the coaching staff. Chip, what do you think about old Jeremy Pruitt and this great coaching staff that we were so, so excited for going into the season? <laughs> Man, I just – I just every, every time I talk about it, every time I think about it, really since it happened, I, I just – the first thought that comes to my mind is, where do you even begin? Because, they, I mean, I just don't understand. You could literally go through every part of the game, every single thing that happened, every play, every player, every coach, every coaching decision, and just, I mean, and that's even on, on the more micro level of just the one game. That doesn't even get into the more, the more existential questions about this program right now that I'm hoping we can get into later. Um, but as far as the game itself, where do you begin? I think if I had to point to one thing, it would have to be where <laughs> where was the urgency from the coaching staff in the second half? Like, yeah, yep. we've seen it happen a million times, right? Like, we've seen teams like Tennessee or, or even better teams, like like a Georgia or, or an Alabama, well, not really Alabama, but like, you know, ranks like lower, like top 25 type teams. You've seen them go in to their, one of their cupcake games and, oh, it's halftime and they're down seven or it's tied or something like that. And it's like, well, you know, they, maybe they went into that game with a vanilla game plan, not wanting to show much, just kind of thinking they could put it on cruise control and get through the game, and that's fine. I'm 100% fine if that's what we did against Georgia State, although we're not really good enough to do that against anybody. But if that's what they did and plan to do it until, until halftime or whatever, that's fine. But at some point, you realize you're in a close game at halftime. You realize you're losing in the third quarter, and there's got to be sense of urgency that showed, be it in the play calling or, or elsewhere. And, you know, I know we don't – we still – you know, at some point, talent has to stop being an excuse because, you know, I know I know we're playing freshmen and stuff, but, like, we've had good recruiting classes. They're not that bad. They're not Georgia State bad. So, like, you know, at some point, there just was no – there was no sense of urgency from Pruitt and his staff when it came to, okay, we really need to start trying to pull away now. And that, that that's the thing that I don't understand because at some point, a switch needs to go off in your head where it's like, shit, I can't lose this game. If I'm Jeremy Pruitt, I can't lose this game. Like, you know, maybe you lose to BYU next week and you recover the season or whatever. I can't lose this first game. And and there was never, never any urgency that I saw. It's just remarkable. I don't understand 
what they were doing, like you said, the whole second half, they weren't, they need to start to, well, yes, we were leading 17-14 going into halftime. Great job, guys. But the yeah. bottom line is, when you see that, when you see that score and how, how they were just running it down our throats and doing everything at will, and honestly, how bad uh, Garantano looked in the first half. I mean, if, if that didn't last, uh, last three plays of the half didn't show you anything when he threw the interception, it got called back and then he missed a wide open receiver again. If that doesn't show you anything, then that just, th- this, it was just so poor by the coaching staff to not be like, we either need to run it down these two-star athletes on this D-line that we clearly did in the first quarter, not to a great degree, but still that run that Ty Chandler broke and a few other runs that were like decent long runs in critical situations in the first quarter. We just need to keep doing that. Or else, if you do have to uh, give – JG the ball in his hands, throw screens to Juwan Jennings, the dog of the team, who will actually who actually gives a goddamn about this this team and program. I mean, it's just just the reluctancy to do anything aggressive. And then what was that when he slid down on third and three and didn't get the first down? And then we pumped. Oh. It's just it's just oh. oh my god. So I kind of I want to transition and get Charles in here too. Charles specifically, and then you can go on and whatever else you have in this game, but. Talk about Garantano for a second and what you thought of how p- unbelievably poor he looked going into his fourth year um, at this program, on this team. It's just unbelievable. God bless us, it's unbelievable. Isn't it, isn't it painful? Like, I thought this it's would be so therapeutic, painful. but I feel, like, I feel like I'm reliving the game now. I'm just thinking about every different aspect of the game. But Garantano was absolutely awful. And uh, obviously some of that is because of the offensive line. Which is which is a whole nother story. How they just God, couldn't even, stop that. Yeah, yeah, couldn't stop the apparently unstoppable uh, interior defense of Georgia State. Um, but everybody was talking about how Garantano made a jump this year. How he's looked so good in the spring, and it, it, I didn't see it at all. And that interception you're talking about, like, like that was the worst decision I've ever seen, and it got called back because of a penalty. So really, we should have had four turnovers um, offensively. But I, I just – I could not believe what I was seeing. Um, I, I really don't even – like Chip said, like, like where do you even start? Like if you go through every phase of the game, we didn't excel in a single area except for maybe special teams. Like, <laughs> like we made our field goals. Click, yeah, yeah Kalimna looked great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's the only reason that the game was as close as it was, even though it was a garbage time touchdown that got us to within eight. Um, but yeah, it, it's just funny because like, because I've heard a lot of different takes on this game, and I've heard some analysts on ESPN Radio. I was driving home from work the other day, and uh, they were breaking down this game. And one guy was like, "Well, the Tennessee offense, uh, th- they did their job looking at the stats line. Uh, Garantano threw for three sixty-five, uh, just had three costly turnovers. It's like, no, you can't do your job and have three costly turnovers. And most of that yardage was garbage time." It was unbelievable. They they weren't really any better than the defense was. Um, but I would say the single the single takeaway from this game, the most like concerning, I guess, disappointing thing for me, was exactly what Chip said: the lack of urgency. It didn't even seem like our guys were playing hard at all. They they were not even. There were so many plays, especially on defense, where they would give up halfway through the play. Like they it and like if this was happening to any other coach, like. Like, if you picture Nick Saban in this situation, uh, if you picture Kirby Smart in this situation, they are sweating their ass off, losing their minds on the sideline, trying to get everything right, like, trying to do their job. Pruitt was, like, he was just stone-faced. Like, he, he didn't even do anything. And it's, it's a stark contrast from what I thought Pruitt was going to be like. Because if you think back to his opening press conference with Tennessee, and I know that's a completely different setting, but he was, like, literally yelling in the press conference, like, let's get our hands dirty. I need everybody in. Like, he, he was fired up. And you never saw that at any point during the game or even at the press conference after. You never saw the sense of urgency. And that's why, obviously, I'm fully off the Pruitt bandwagon. That goes without saying. But. And they're the most, they're highest paid coaching staff in the leagues. I know SEC, but possibly uh, NCAA. And it's just like, 
coordinator co- yep. coaching staff. Um, yeah. And it's just, there's just so many things to go back to with the coach, with the uh, coaches itself, because you saw there um, the offensive line, you've had all of off season and training or whatever the, I guess, August, not training camp, whatever you want to call it to get the offensive line ready and acclimated with each other. And it's a cohesive group that has to run together at all, all times. We played 10 offensive linemen in the game. As I was watching the game, but that's really I didn't bad. either. I don't even understand yeah, yeah. the point of that. I heard it from a podcast, and that was it. Was yeah. Hearing back at it, I was like, "That's just absurd." You know what the funniest thing is though about this result? So make no mistake. Um, for for any listeners that aren't aware of this, Georgia State is not like Appalachian State, where they're a really good lower class team. They're not. They're not like a Troy who beat LSU. They're not like that. They are. An embarrassment of a program. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't really call them an embarrassment because they're only a decade-old program. That's probably a better way to say it. They're just a really young program that hasn't had a chance to start winning anything yet. They were 2-10 and 10 last year, and they're, they're a nine-year-old program to be exact. So, they're – I mean, they are the, the definition of a cupcake. They're, they're not, a, like, one of the harder ones. They're one of the easier ones. And so, the funniest thing to me about this is that we've seen it happen before. Um like, I, I remember the Air Force game, like, back in, like, 04 or something. Jack, you weren't a fan yet, but I think you know what I'm talking about, um, where it went to OT and we won. Uh, yeah. And, and, all, and, like, the UAB game from, like, Dooley, one of Dooley's years, maybe, where I was, like, I think it was, like, 2010, where we won in double overtime. And it's, like, you think of games like that where you eke out the win, and nobody cares. Everybody moves on, and it's, like, okay, well, maybe we sucked, and maybe we should win by, like, 20, but we didn't, but at least we got the win. The funny thing about this game is that if you eke out that win, You've got 100,000-plus coming for BYU this Saturday, and nobody cares. Nobody cares that you barely won. And, and maybe, maybe you know, maybe the larger problems would have still been there. I mean, they, they clearly would have still been there, even if we had barely won. But, like, the fans wouldn't have cared. Everybody would be there this Saturday. Everybody would be loud. It's a night game. They're ready to go against a beatable opponent. Instead, I bet you don't get, like, I bet 80,000? I mean, will we get 80,000 this weekend? Like, should we? I mean, honestly. We definitely shouldn't. I honestly don't think we will. They don't deserve it. It's ridiculous. No, they don't. Because like we have said over and over and over, they don't care. They didn't look like they cared. The only person that cared were the freshmen, um, Eric Gray and Juwan Jennings. And other than that, it's just like these guys are just – Trey Smith. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so it's just like – it's just – God, it's just so awful. And then uh, another thing I want to highlight is – Okay, it's back uh, again on the coaching staff itself, but the defensive, the defensive, um, pretty much the whole defense. I'll just say, I was going to say like the front seven, but the defense in general, where they lined up on the field, they kept lining up in the wrong positions after the Georgia State and Dan Ellinger, or whatever his name is, ran the triple or option, normal option, like 80 times, and they're still getting beat on the outside, not staying home. It's like, my God, the two put away touchdowns, one, the first, or the, not two put away, but the first one when they took the lead, I can't believe I'm saying this. This is just unbelievable. It (laughs) really, like, it is, it's not even therapeutic, Charles. You're right. It's just horror reliving the game. But anyway, (laughs) yeah. um, You saw the guy come on the field late and then go to the inside, get beat, and the, the running, the running back who rushed for like a million yards. Um, beat them on their outside and scored the go-ahead touchdown. And then on the play that they went up by like 14 points or whatever, the um, we got beat on the inside again on the double or the the option, and they took the handoff and the quarterback ran for the touchdown. And it's just unbelievable. You can't just stay at home with this guy, a quarterback, and you you know he's going to scramble. But our defense gave up four yards of rush and 53 rushing attempts for 213 yards on an SEC defense against a Sunbelt team who went 2-10, two and, two and ten, like you said, Chip. That's a, I forgot to put that in the beginning. But they went 2-10 and ten in the Sunbelt. It's just un-freaking-believable. I mean, it, it, it's funny because we knew, we knew, everybody that paid attention, even a slightest, the slightest bit of attention in the offseason, knew that our defensive line was going to be really bad this year and was going to get bullied by most of the teams that we played. 
I did not expect to get bullied by the Georgia State offensive line, but we sure did. And I, I have to say, I still love the guy because he had a great season for us last year. Where was Daryl Taylor? Where was Daryl Taylor? We needed a couple of plays from him uh, this weekend, and we didn't get anything from him. And I think he's probably the best player on the defense. Where was he? Yeah, it's there was a lot of names that were just no shows. Again, I, I I would do anything for Nigel Warrior to be a good football player. Like I wanted him yeah, to be good tough. so bad, and he's awful. Yeah. and like it, there's I mean, a few I, I, guys. I, I try not to hate Warrior because I, I like he he for some reason is a guy that has gotten a lot of hate from the fans, probably because he's been a disappointing player, which which he has, but. And you're going to get some hate, but I, I think I actually think Warrior is one of the guys that truly loves the University of Tennessee. So that's why I try to stay off the guy. Like I'll, I'll rag on somebody like Jordan Murphy who thinks it's funny to joke about losing this game, and now he's off the team. The Warrior, you know, he gets a lot of hate. And he's going to keep getting a lot of hate because he's a senior and he sucks. But I, I respect <laughs> him because he loves the university. That's just my take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, definitely can see that for sure. Oh, boy. Where so, do we go from here? And Powell has been quiet over there. I want Before we jump into, I was going to ask the existential question of our program, but uh, I want an outsider's perspective. One of the two Powells, can y'all chime in? Because y'all, y'all have been too quiet. Well, I'll, I'll chime well, in first. Uh, I think you nailed that, uh, hit the nail on the head with your very first point, which was urgency, because – I wasn't watching the game at all until I saw the halftime score. And I said, oh, man, let's, let's watch this second half and see what Tennessee does. And then, I mean, the, 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 they were joking about it on the TV. That Georgia State got the ball second half, went right down the field and scored, and they were saying, like, half the people aren't even back from the concession stands yet, and Tennessee's lost the lead. And, the, like, these fans have no idea that they're in for they're in for a game. And then – that after they scored and took the lead, it was like Tennessee, you didn't see them, you know, pushing the envelope with anything, offensively or defensively. And it was just mind-boggling to see them just kind of almost try to ease their way into a win instead of pushing for it, if that makes sense. And another huge thing I noticed, like, it's funny, because you can break down every phase where we struggled, and it's, like I said, it's literally every phase except for special teams. However... The the biggest concern was the lack of urgency, blah, blah, blah. But if you break down, like, the X's and O's, purely game planning, I, that's, my, that's just as mind-boggling as our lack of effort on the field. We continued to roll out. I'm not sure if you guys noticed this, but we continued to roll out two high safeties. While the, like, did, did it look like they were hurting us deep in the passing game at all? Why are we running out two oh, high safeties before we – That's such a good point. We, that's such a good point, Before we could stop honestly. the run. We couldn't we, – yeah, we couldn't stop the run at all, and we weren't – weren't very concerned about it. We were too busy with our safeties, literally almost at prevent level. Their uh, QB is awful. The- Make no mistake about it. He made one very good throw at the touchdown, but he is awful. Make no mistake right. about that. Right. That's the thing. It's not like they were beating us with big plays. It was methodical drive with, you know, averaging seven yards a rush. And on the offensive side of the ball, you would think that our receivers are just awful. Either that or you would think that Georgia State just has a lockdown Legion of Boom secondary because, boy, did we throw deep like a single time before garbage time? I mean, like, <laughs> that's probably where we have our biggest advantage is on the outside with guys like Jawan Jennings and Marquez Callaway. And, I mean, we didn't uh, – you know, we have the highest paid offensive coordinator in the SEC, and apparently he was just terrified to dial it up for even one or two deep throws against the vaunted – the vaunted – Georgia State secondary. So that that was my main two takeaways from like both sides of the ball. Um, but like I said, like with defense, man, like we weren't even lining up correctly. There was a play where we had two defensive ends line up on the same side of the field. Like, I mean, this is like you would think that we didn't, we just didn't have any practices like like in the spring preparing for this game because that's what that would have. Yeah, it's like, like high school stuff. Yeah, that's 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 another reason. This the preparation for this game and not, like wanting to come out I mean hell Peyton Manning was there I mean like you know Phil Fulmer of course was ready it's just like and what like John Reed also said this I listened to it the back half of it today so that's why I have all of his thoughts on my mind but it's something to talk about with everyone here what does Phil Fulmer think about this when he, he's the guy that hired him and I mean 
I mean, I, I was on the Pruitt train, but I wasn't on the Fulmer train ever. And it's just like, what does he think now when he had the whole fan base pretty much behind him? And now it's like, oh, shit, Pruitt might not be a good hire. And I guess this will well, come to the existential question. Well, blew up the whole search. We had Mike Leach locked down. And he had oh, that's to why, the entire search to get his guy. You know, that's why I don't like it. I, that's why I don't like the whole thing, because it has Fulmer's UT stench all over it. And I was, yeah. I mean, it's because I didn't become a fan since the, until I went there. So I don't have the Fulmer bias with me. But it's like, that's an awful move as an athletic coordinator slash big um, big donor guy at the time to just go in there and blow things up like that to get your guy. I guess that goes to the more existential question, and then we'll switch. We'll talk about the existential pretty much overview now, the Vols season, and then we'll go into Florida State and get John and Richard to vent about their game, but we'll kind of have a clean split of it all, or of it both, to kind of have this ordered in this way instead of going back and forth. I think yeah. that's a better way to do it. But, um, yeah, so the season's over in before September. Is that pretty much okay? Maybe if we beat Florida, it's okay, but I don't know. I mean, kind of like I alluded to off the top, this isn't like LSU, Troy, or Michigan, Appalachian State. We got our shit kicked in. And so it's like, in that case, we aren't going to come out and like, oh, we, well, we can just bounce back and easily beat Florida. It's like, no, no, no. We're going to get destroyed by Florida destroyed by Georgia, beat by a touchdown or two against BYU at home in a night game. It's like we have a real possibility, and we've talked about this in the group text, of going 2-10 and 10 this season. But my God, <laughs> it's unbelievable that we're, we thought we – and there's nowhere to go from here. It's not like we're turned a corner, oh, we can just fire a coach and get back on. We had all the hope, and we've been saying this for the past decade or just about a little less than a decade. It's just it just hurts. And that that right there, that right there is where the, the existential part of this comes in because hell, at this point, forget about this whole season, honestly. Like like just forget it. You know, we're going what if five and if that five and seven now feels like an at absolute best case scenario. Um five and seven does. And like but like more long term what I've been shouting this at Charles all week. Where do you go from here? And, Dad, where do you go from here as a program? Because do you fire Pruitt? Because how many great coaches have you ever seen have a loss like this and then turn around and become a great coach and lead the program to success? That I don't know if I ever have seen a, any good coach suffer a loss like this. So do you fire Pruitt now? Do you fire Pruitt at the end of the season? Do you give him two more years like you, like you did Dooley or Butch or whatever? Do you – and if you do fire him now, who the hell wants to come here? Because you're going to have all this turnover with players. You're going to have all these recruits that are decommitting and doing all this other stuff. Like, like you're just – you're talking about, you know, we already had our transition recruiting class, which was not so good when we hired Pruitt. Now you're talking about having another one if, if you were to fire Pruitt. You lose Harrison Bailey. You lose all those other good uh, uh, defensive players that he has committed. You have to bring in a new coach and say, yeah, re- rebuild this. Yeah, re- rebuild this. Do your best. And, like, who knows, even regardless of whether we fire Pruitt, how many recruits we're going to lose from just losing this game and how many players are going to quit by week four. And I, I don't mean literally quit. I mean quit and not try on the field. Like, like this, this is going to get worse. It really is going to get worse whether we fire Pruitt or not, honestly. It feels like the death of a program, honestly. Well, to be fair, we've been pretty spoiled these last few years. You know, <laughs> if, you look at the past, if you look at the past 10 years of Tennessee football, I can see why we're hitting rock bottom now because, boy, we were just so spoiled with Dooley and Butch and then Kiffin leaving. Like, I completely – I think this is fair enough. This is like poetic justice. We deserve this, right? What is it? I think it is the 10-year 10, 10 anniversary of Kiffin leaving. Or no, 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 maybe one more year. Yeah, no, it is. That was, it was 09, wasn't it? Oh, okay, 09, yeah. Oh, boy. Remember when we wanted to – uh, fire Butch, and now we would have loved to have him here. But one you know, thing, fire, fire like, Butch after two nine and four seasons, right? <laughs> God, Frick, <laughs> I stand by it though. We Frick. we all know we all know those should have been like ten and two seasons. Yeah, you know no, I mean, yeah, that one season was just iconically bad. So I want to do transition a little bit. Would how much of the season, and we'll go like a hundred percent, would be going three and zero going into Florida, and to now obviously 0%. How much percent would it bring back if we beat Florida? 80 for me, I guess. 80? 
But, like, if I'm being yeah. realistic, I don't even know if I can honestly say that there's a 1 in 100 chance that we beat Florida, honestly. Oh, I, I'm But I'd say, like, 80%. I know that's they'll be Sorry, They'll be 14. They'll be 14-point favorites, if not more. Oh, yeah, at least, for sure. And then, of course, yeah, we'll say, go through I'd the – I'd say 80%. I don't know. Charles, what, what would you say for that? Yeah, I think 80% is a good number because it's just – it would almost make up for the years where we've like we've done other good things but haven't beat Florida. It's like and and there's the aspect of if we're gonna beat Florida and we're like as bad as possible, it's gonna make Florida look that much worse. Like what if we get like two or three wins but we beat Florida? Like like that's that much of a worse loss for Florida. So that's, that's uh, a just good point. out of Florida yeah, just out of Florida hatred, I would say eighty percent. And you know, they always play ugly games against us. I'm not saying we have a chance, but, you know, knowing them, they'll, like, give us hope, and then they'll win by a touchdown. But, yeah, 80% is a good number. Yeah, I'd probably say 50 or 60 for me, honestly. I just – I'm just – I just hurt. Hurt after this damn loss. And I mean, of course, it could have come back to being fine and everything. But, and I'll, but the good thing, kind of like you were saying, Charles, I know more Florida fans that it would hurt as well. <laughs> I'm such a jackass. <laughs> but <laughs> that it would hurt as well, and I could, like, hold that over them, even if we lost to Georgia State, because I only know, like, a few Georgia State people. Really not the best time to be living in Atlanta right now. For all the loyal listeners out there, I got a uh, email. <laughs> I got an email bright and early Tuesday morning saying Panthers pride with a box score clipped onto the email to the whole staff at the firm. <laughs> And just <laughs> dragging amazing. me, dragging me through the mud. But, Get all um, office banter. And one more quick thing before we change topics. Uh, Chip mentioned earlier: Has there ever been a coach that had a bad loss in his first couple of years and ended up being a good coach? Don't forget Nick Saban in his first year lost to a really bad Louisiana Monroe team. I'm not calling Pruitt Saban by any means, but bad losses happen. And Dabo had a few bad losses with Clemson as well. Yeah, that is, that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. I think I forgot about that. I guess I should have clarified that to say how many coaches have lost in in any year other than year one, because that was Saban's year one, and this is Pruitt's year two. So I guess I guess I should have probably clarified that. But yeah, you're well, right, and, and that's fair. I mean, it, bad losses happen the first couple of years of a new era. To me, they happen so, in year one. They're not acceptable in year two. Year two is when you find out what a coach is made of, usually. Okay. Well, I just thought I'd like to point that out. Yeah, for sure. So that's pretty much our piece on the Tennessee Volunteers with the E A R. Let me just let me just say let me just say I would still die for Jawan Jennings and Trey Smith. I just want to say that before we go, or before the, we're a, done with this part. Yeah, that's a good closing. I'm going to I'm going to BYU. I'm so sorry. Are you going to the Because <laughs> Alexander and Sam had two extra tickets, and I committed to it before we lost to Georgia State. <laughs> That's funny. I I'm excited. For I'm excited. We're we're gonna we're gonna be pre gaming hard. I'm excited. Yeah, you there you go. Make like a you should make like a Miami recruit and decommit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God this is still recording. <laughs> That's that's content right there, guys. Good job. Yep. Now transitioning into the, I guess the first game of the day, but the other game in the cousin circle and this the what the podcast is themed today is the Florida State Seminoles lost to the Boise State Broncos in Tallahassee. Unfortunately for the Seminoles, it was in Tallahassee and they lost thirty six thirty one. Richard, we'll go ahead and just give it to you. I, I actually wasn't able to watch most of this game. Liverpool was playing, so we'll just send it to you and give us your thoughts, and then John can chime in on with it, what he thinks about the game as well. Well, I, I think this game was kind of two sides of the same coin for Florida State. You, you saw the really good, and you saw the really bad with them. Uh, you look at the first half stats for Blackman, I think it was 17-19 for 275 yards and three touchdowns. Akers had I think nine rushes for 87 yards and a touchdown. You know, we, we were moving the ball. We were averaging almost 12 and a half yards of play um, until one of our starting linemen went down. And then afterwards it was like 2.7 yards of play, and which 
you know, little tangent here. That's how Florida State season is going to be. If one guy goes down on the O line, say goodbye to the offense. We we have no depth there. But I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, second half is kind of the bad you saw with the offense. Uh, Boise did a good job of making their adjustments. We, we beat them with. Uh, they dared us to go long, and we did. We we had a lot of big hit plays, uh, especially in the in the passing game, over 20, 30 yards. Two of them were touchdowns. And Boise dared us to do that stuff because they did. They challenged our offensive line, and our offensive line actually did a decent job of blocking the person in front of them. But second half, Boise adjusted, kept people back deep, made forced us to throw it underneath while also adding pressure to the offensive line. We couldn't win first and second down, so we were forced into passing plays. And when our offensive line is facing bull rush, they they stand no chance. I mean, our starting left guard went down, the second string guy that came in literally didn't touch the guy as he went around him to sack, fumble, James Blackman. So good. we saw the very good and the very bad with the offense. Defense was atrocious the whole way around. I'll get into that later. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to John and let him give his thoughts on the overall game because I have a lot to say about the defense, and I, I don't want to say it right now. I mean, if we're just going to focus on the offense right now, I think the first half was a beautiful thing. I actually, uh, the line was actually kind of long to get in the game, which was nice for the student section. Uh, so I actually ended up missing our first touchdown, but then uh, I got to watch all the rest of them, and you saw glimpses of what we're supposed to be able to do with deep vertical passes underneath routes, screens, just a, a whole lot of misdirection, make them play wide, make them play forward, and then go deep. And that's how we're going to play all year. But you also, the second half, we were just abysmal. We couldn't get anything going. We kept fumbling the ball and turning it over. We had two straight two straight fumbles in, to start the second half, both in Boise State territory. Both of them they recovered. And it's just, there's not, that, that's such a shot in the foot to start the half, even if we had the lead. Like, that's, that's 10, 7, 14 points that we left right there to start the half. We had abysmal play from uh, from Keith Gavin to do the easy thing. He had a wide open pass that all he had to do was catch the ball, basically walk in for a touchdown, and he drops it. There's no one around, no one within two yards of him. Like, it, it was, the good was really good, and the bad was so bad that I don't think I believe in this team anymore at all. And that was just on the offensive side of the ball. We literally cannot lose an offensive lineman. I think Brady Scott went down, which Richard was talking about. And Brady Scott is not a good football player. He probably would not start for any Power 5 team at left guard except for us right now. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. No power. I think you can say that for all of our offensive linemen, honestly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, our best our best offensive liner right now is Dontari Poe, who's just a scrappy freshman. And, like, that, that tells you all you really need to know about how bad our offensive line is. It was just – it was unfortunate. The nice thing was the ups compared to 12, DeAndre Francois, he who should not be named, James Blackman knew how to knew how to run the RPO, knew how to run read option. It was super nice to have linebackers actually have to respect it because the quarterback knew what he was doing with it. Uh, he made a lot of really good, accurate throws in the first half. He was really clicking, but once once the pressure started getting to him, he couldn't make any throws. It was just like, and, and that was one thing that really bothered me in the second half was. We kind of got away from the whole RPO thing because we did such a good job of winning first and second down. And by by that, I mean, you know, getting at least two or three yards on that down. So, I mean, we, we were doing such a good job of, you know, handing it off to LeBorn or to Akers, let them go wide or let them do a little counter run that they would take for, you know, five, six, seven, even 12 yards. And all of a sudden, Boise starts respecting the run, and we do a little RPO with a slot receiver doing a slant. That 
linebacker comes up, you pull the ball, and you throw right over the linebacker's head. And we were doing that the first half. Second half, Boise starts taking away that run, forcing us to end the passing downs. And like I said, like we get into these passing downs, this offensive line's not good enough to give Blackman the three seconds he needs to find someone who's open. Someone needs to get open under, you know, two and a half, three seconds. And that's kind of almost too much to ask for. And, and you know, Keith Gavin would be the wide receiver that should be able to do that. He literally looks like Des Bryant. He's looked like that since high school. He's like a 220 pound, six foot dude or six foot two dude. Just he runs by like a four five forty. All these incredible numbers, but he can just never put it together. And he's honestly taking up a valuable wide receiver slot for like I don't know, even like Warren Thompson, one of those guys, one of the guys that wants to actually prove himself because it just doesn't seem like yeah. Keith Gavin can keep it together. We have Tamori on Terry, which is great. He's just as advertised. He's amazing. But they're going to double-team him on passing downs, or they're at least going to shade somebody over him on passing downs because he's the only real threaded receiver we have. Right. And that's the thing. We have such good weapons on the outside with Helton and Treshawn Harrison and uh, Scary Terry. I mean, even even when Gavin doesn't play well, I mean, we have options behind him. It's just this offensive line. I mean, when when defenses can stop the run with not even putting more than four or five people on the line or in the box, you're you're shit out of luck. I mean, there's nothing you can do against that because if you try to play action, guess what? I mean, maybe one guy sucks in, that's five people. There's still six people in coverage. You're not you're not singling out any one man on man by doing that or anything. It's until this offensive line gets to where it needs to be, we're going to have a hard time scoring a lot of points or as many points as we need to to win big games. And at best, that's two years away. And that's if the group we have now becomes what we need them to be in two years. I will say, I will say, because we're we're going to get in heavy on the discipline and the coaching when we're talking about defense. For the offense, though, we actually had discipline in coaching. We didn't have as many holding calls. We didn't have any as many pre-snap uh, pre-snap penalties. We didn't have any regular infractions. We knew what the play calls were. We didn't have delay games. All the things we didn't have last year. So at least on at the very least on offense, we seem to be well-coached in the basics, which is pathetic to even have to have the bar that low. But after last season, like, we had to. So it's nice to see no, we at least round that out. I 100% agree. Our, our offensive line, while it is probably still in the lower third of college football, like all of college football, meaning outside top 100, um, they still did their job, which is just block the man in front of you. Just at least do that. It's all we need you to do. And they did a good job of that. The only holding call that happened was on a big fourth and six at, at the, on the last drive of the game after getting the first down. But overall, I agree. They look much more uh, well coached out there than they did last year. They, they seem to know their assignments better and they, they seem to be blocking better it's it's so sad to just be happy that our offensive line can block but it, it but after last year i mean you that's what you can take and john i wanted to ask you this this was a good poll question uh that we saw because i want to get into the mistakes that we made real quick before we talk, start talking about the defense like what what do you think was a bigger turning point to the game uh jackson and taylor not picking up that fumble the snap that went over Blackman's head because he wasn't ready ready for it, uh, or Akers fumble in the second half after getting a pick. I think it was Akers fumble in the second half because it was we were getting momentum and we are we it was a pretty solid drive that we had going if I recall correctly, and then he just he just fumbles it away and he's had ball security issues. For a while, yep. and that one—that one was the one. That was where the one where, uh, for all you fans at home, that was the one where I almost got picked out of the game. I was so angry, and I was just yelling huge amounts of, of very terrible words <laughs> that children shouldn't hear ever. 
and I, the security guard literally came up to me and said, like, you need to calm down, bro. And I was like, fine, <laughs> I guess. Uh, okay. I, okay, we're we're on the same it page. Took the energy, yeah. It took the energy out of the crowd the most too. Everyone just everyone just got mad after that. Yeah, because if I recall correctly, that we were it was thirty one nineteen. Uh, Boise was driving. They they were inside our forty. We send in like Max Blitz. We managed to get a hit on the quarterback. He sails the pass over our safe or our corner. Uh, man, it comes off his guy to make the pick. Woohoo! Acres breaks a 14-yard run. Awesome. Next play was a two-yard run. Cool. Next play, he gets about six yards, and as he's going down, gets the ball punched out from behind him. Now, when you're a defense and you make a big play for your team, only to have to go back out on the field three plays later, it's demoralizing. No matter how bad our defense was playing the whole game, they made a play to get us the ball back. And we gave the ball right back, and it, that that to me really popped the balloon as far as the belief that we were going to pull this one out. Because yeah, our I defense, agree. like, because this will be a good transition because our our defense could not do anything against that Boise offense. They ran 106 plays for 620 some odd yards. That is. Off, they don't even run, they don't even run a high tempo offense. They run like a power run, like single back op, op, offense. I mean, maybe it's kind of no huddle, but it's still not like a spread no huddle attack. It's just a kind of a standard offense that you play against. And it's it's ridiculous that they can run that many plays and get relatively so few yards. I know that sounds weird. It's like 600 yards. That's a lot. But they had the ball for 40 minutes and only gained 600 yards. So we weren't giving them anything deep. We were just giving them every dink and dunk and run possible. Like averaging six yards a play seems like a lot. It's two plays to get a first down and everything. But they didn't have many breakaway plays. We limited their – I forget what the exact metric is called, but basically 20-plus yard runs and 30-plus yard catches. They only had, like, I want to say three of those. We did everything – that our defense isn't supposed to do with the way that we're set up and designed. We're supposed to force turnovers, which we attempted to do, which was nice. And uh, we're supposed to give up deep plays and we're supposed to have a high, high amount of possessions for each team. And that didn't happen. And our defense couldn't get off the field. Our offense didn't help them by going one for 12 on third downs. But you just can't allow, you can't, let them sustain drives in 99 degree heat, 65% humidity like that. It just wears on you because like we just don't have the depth on defense to be able to roll that out. And Boise can kind of control it. They can, they can get different offensive line and in and out because they have the ability to do that. Cause you know, they probably have more than a one deep offensive line, which must be nice. And uh, <laughs> our defense just, they couldn't do anything to stop, short short zone runs short uh short dives they did they did a lot of off tackle runs which would just which should have been stopped for no gain but they go four or five yards because our linebacker loses responsibility uh our secondary and our linebackers weren't communicating they had 14 yard passes almost whenever they wanted because they would get in the holes between our zones we kept running this weird cover three scheme and tried to convert to a cover two scheme later on. But the whole the holes in those two schemes are in the same spot on the outside hook zone for anywhere from seven to ten yards. So it just didn't matter. It, we it was completely undisciplined in pass coverage. We were completely undisciplined in our gap responsibilities. There were some times when we had two or three people covering like the A gaps, which is just ridiculous. Like <laughs> you should never have that many. Should take one, two tops, but three never. It was it was terrible discipline on our defense. Was, oh, so bad. If I'm if I'm Willie Taggart, I'm telling Harlan Barnett, who was our defensive coordinator, you have 11 games to prove to me that you can turn this defense into a top defense in the in the ACC. Not even in college football. Just make it a top half ACC defense. You have 11 games to do that. 
because I don't want to overreact after one game, but every level of defense, that game was awful except for one player, and that's Marvin Wilson, who is arguably the best player on our team. I, and I he plays. Say, I would say he is. Yeah, he, he's our defensive tackle, and he's a monster of a man. He's strong, and he's really smart. He, he has really high game IQ. Now, here's the thing. This summer, we switched from a 4-3 base to a 3-4 base. Now, with that comes a lot of different things. You, you, your run fits are different, like you were just saying. You have different gap responsibilities as well as coverage responsibilities. Uh, defensive ends suddenly become kind of like pseudo linebackers because they can either line up on the end or they can be standing up so that they can cover the flats. Um, you have a nose tackle who sits there on the center, and then you have two defensive tackles who usually sit there between the guards and tackles. And then you have the two linebackers behind them whose responsibility is for the gaps in between the nose tackle and the uh, defensive tackle, or the yeah, the nose tackle and the defensive tackles. If you watch the film, our linebackers. I, I, actually, hold on, I'm going to start with. I'm going to go each level real quick. Defensive line did a terrible job of winning the line of scrimmage. They were getting pushed backwards, um, save a couple times when Marvin Wilson managed to get to the QB. But in the run game, they created no push when they when they slanted. To try to um, stop the run, they slanted too far, opening up a, a running lane for the running back. Second level, linebackers. Coverage was decent, but their gap responsibility and their, their run defense was atrocious. Um, there's a thing called, uh, they, they call it triggering. It's when um, a linebacker is supposed to recognize a run and start going downhill, meaning they attack the line of scrimmage, keep the runner from gaining as much lines, uh, much yards as possible. Our linebackers were getting blocked. We're starting to get blocked flat-footed four to six yards from the line of scrimmage. They were not even trying to get towards the line of scrimmage. And we were, we're sitting here wondering, how the heck did Boise run for 220 yards on us? That's how. Our linebackers did not play for the run. They sat there and let themselves get blocked by offensive ta uh, offensive linemen clearly coming off the line to block. Secondary, whether it was man or zone, did awful in coverage. Man, when after a certain amount of time, you need to look back for the ball because that means that the quarterback's either scrambling or is trying to force a throw after a certain amount of time. Look for the ball. Zone coverage was awful. Our guys were sitting there almost like covering grass instead of covering a man. What you're supposed to do in a zone coverage is pattern recognition or route recognition where you see a running uh, a wide receiver running a certain route and you go with him and then pass him off to the next guy behind you, which is usually another corner or the safety that will be playing behind you, and then go back down to your zone. So you're supposed to be passing him off to the next defender. Our guys weren't doing that. Our guys were letting guys run past them. They were keeping their eyes on the quarterback. They weren't keeping their heads on a swivel to see where the open spots in the zone were. And because of that, that Brockmeyer guy or whatever, he heck of a quarterback. He took a lot of hits. I think we hit him 28 times. He threw for over 400 yards mainly because he got out of a sack and found someone down the field because our coverage, uh, our guys – got lost in their own coverage, and that's not good. You're supposed to be covering the wide receivers, not an era, an area of the field. You know, you said something nice when you said that. We got to the, we got to the quarterback a lot. We dialed up so many exotic, ridiculous blitz packages that it, we, we, we got six sacks, which is good for the third most out of all the teams that played FBS opponents in week one. And we look our blitz packages were legitimately good they, there was a lot of good stunts that were done we did a lot of stacking to make the offensive linemen try to guess where we were going and we would let their actions dictate our reaction to get to the hole it, we did a lot of cool things with that but we just had I, it's almost as if we have been practicing all these 
interesting coverages in the back end and all these all these cool zone handoff packages and all that stuff and it's like they i bet they work great in practice when nothing matters and it looked good in the film for practice but i think they were just a little bit too much for our relatively young secondary to really handle we only have one senior in the secondary we have a freshman two uh two sophomores so you're asking them to learn this whole new backside defense system and a summer a spring and a summer and this is like incredibly complicated stuff it's kind of similar to uh uh zone defenses and basketball the way it's supposed to be handed off and let through except and if you know how complicated zone defense can get in basketball you can kind of appreciate it it's uh it's a lot to ask these kids to learn in a short amount of time let alone to learn in such a way that you can try to have it back up these exotic blitz packages and expect them with five of them to really be able to execute it well enough to stop because they're young they're not used to it and last year our secondary was pretty good we did pretty well i mean Mm -hmm. we had some bad games but that was the only reason we were in games last year because our secondary and our defense and now you're telling to teach a whole different way and it's just just not something that clicks for us. No, it doesn't. And, you know, I, I want to kind of go back to the point you said, too. Like, Boise State didn't have many um, explosive plays. They only had two plays that went for over 30 yards. And I think it was, like, five that went over 25. So, look, I get it. You, you want to keep things in front of you. You want to bend but don't break. There's a limit there, <laughs> you know. We 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 weren't challenging them. The like this is the freshman quarterback, you know. Line up with safeties ten yards off the line of scrimmage, and linebackers right on the line, and dare them to beat you long. Because, I mean, I don't care if we if we go to a single safety and zone under. I mean, man to man underneath, and then just blitz the hell out of the quarterback from every game from now on. Because I, I don't think these kids understand how to properly play the zone defense to your point because i mean this is kind of a complex system to understand how to pass it off and then go back to your zone and all that so if that's the case just do it uh you know um, the old bobby bowden style just line up man to man with a couple of safeties and then just try to knock the crap out of the quarterback and then dare them to beat you over the top because Chances are in college, unless you're playing, you know, Trevor Lawrence, which we will be, they won't be able to constantly beat you over the top. So dial up the aggressiveness. Keep those safeties 10 to 12 yards off line of scrimmage. Go strong man to man and then take away the run and dare them to beat you over the top. That's that, Honestly, that would be my adjustment because to just, just sit there and let them pick you apart underneath just – elongates drives and it keeps your defense out there even longer yeah yeah and to uh kind of close out this this florida state talk at least our special teams were good logan tyler was was booting the ball and uh dj matthews is the return man we've finally been looking for so that's nice yeah no i i loved our special teams to be completely honest um even despite a botched snap there inside the five-yard line, Ricky ended up walking right on the field and taking care of a 43-yarder, and he and he was struggling from 40 to 50 yards last year. So uh, good to I see him actually. We just gave away games Oops. with our special teams last year, so it was nice to see. Oh yeah, be decent. And we're and we're fair catching kickoffs, so which is great because last year we were trying to return them and they, we were only getting like the 15-yard line. And now we're fair catching it and getting 10 extra yards. So, yay. Woohoo! <laughs> All right, Jack. We're good. All right. Sorry I hadn't really watched the game, so I really couldn't contribute. But uh, all I know is the Willie T um, bandwagon train is really getting scarce at this point. And there he's going to have to show something at least decent building blocks in ACC play to honestly not maybe not keep his job this year, but to get – some kind of job security 
going into next year. And of course, it's, it's really hard. We really can't produce results with Clemson running the division, especially, and also the conference. But any kind of progression and just a little bit steps forward, it will be important for him coming up here against this for these first ACC games. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Jack. I, I think uh, if Willie Taggart's leash wasn't short enough already, it's even shorter. Um, this was a game we had up 18 uh, at one point, and then they get it within, what, 12 at half, and then they shut us out the second half. So that's kind of on Willie and on Bryles for not being able to put points back on the board when Boise was starting to come back. But I personally, I still pin this on the defensive coordinator more than Willie. Uh, we'll, but so I, I still want to see what I want to see what the defense looks like the rest of the season before I'm going to start pointing the finger at Willie. Because I mean, I, at this point, it's I'm just hoping that we get seven, eight wins, maybe, and Willie doesn't go in the next year as a lame duck. But I mean, if we go six and six, five and seven, I mean. Unless we go ten and two in twenty twenty, I don't. I don't think Willie stands much of a chance of keeping his job. Yep. So we will see, though. It'll be uh, interesting how both programs <laughs> play out as they're uh, <laughs> kind of uh, at a lull, to say the least, as Tennessee is just in the cellar. But this won't happen every week. Don't worry, listeners. You don't have to hear us bitch and moan and complain. For a, literally a full hour to this point, we'll get back to previewing, recapping, kind of talking about the best teams. But we absolutely knew we had to do this for Tennessee. And then we want to do it for Florida State since they did not have a good weekend as well. So next week, we, we will be back with more coverage of like previewing and NFL talk and everything else that we're used to with this podcast. But before we close, we got to do our best bet segments. Of week number two, we got the full cast of characters this time. And let's see. Let's go ahead and start at best bets. I'll go ahead. My pick is going to be the Los Angeles Rams minus three over the Carolina Panthers. This game is in Carolina, and it has all the setup for a uh, home dog getting the win. And the smart bettors are all over this one. And then there's another one that um, I think it's Kansas City, Jacksonville. They're the home dog always wins. However, it doesn't really travel doesn't really impact teams week one, so they've probably been there for a while. Plus, Cam Newton, I think, is going to be banged up throughout this game. So take the Rams, defending NFC champions, minus three at Carolina. Richard, what do you got? Well, for this week, I'm really liking the spread for Texas LSU. They have LSU favored by six and a half. I am all aboard. The fighting Matthew McConaughey's this year. I believe in Texas. I think they have the team to do it. So I, I look for them to either lose close or manage to beat LSU. John? I'm going to be a hometown hater, and I'm going to say ULM plus 21 against Florida State. They are a primary running team. They like to run triple option were terrible against the run and completely undisciplined undisciplined 15th best rushing offense for them 111th best defense in rushing for us sounds like tennessee <laughs> charles what's your best bet <laughs> take take byu plus three and a half i have no idea why we're getting this much respect from vegas go to you know find a lender uh, get the biggest personal loan you could possibly come up with and put all of it on BYU plus three and a half. And just listen to the first 30 minutes of this podcast if you don't know why. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Or Moneyline. I'm taking Moneyline. All right, following rounding out, Chip, what do you think? Yeah, I genuinely don't understand why Tennessee's favored. Um, mine is going to be, and, and keep in mind, listeners, always bet against me because I'm never right when I gamble. Uh, that's why I don't gamble as much as Charles. Um, <laughs> Raiders at home are plus one against the Broncos. I kind of I feel like the Raiders are going to be like not awful this year, and I feel like the Broncos are. So I feel like the Raiders will win Week One at home. And just to close out the best bet segment, Richard Powell got his first win of this podcast after a whole season of losing every one of his bets last time. Round of applause for Richard Powell. <laughs> <laughs> I really stuck in there. You know, the name of the game is perseverance. 
You know, <laughs> you just stick, there stick you to go, your buddy. guns. Eventually you get one right, you know. Bound to happen one day. So you just stick it out, guys. Anyone out there going 0 for 20, you never know. You might go 1 for 21. So just keep at it. And that's what we think about girls, too. So in that right, right, <laughs> for sure, John. <laughs> Look, if you swing at a lot of pitches, eventually you're going to hit a home run. Oh, buddy. man. That's a great wow. way to end this podcast. <laughs> what a great way. Just a bunch of <laughs> idiots complaining about our teams and then having a good way to laugh about it at the very end. This has been your host, Jack Noonan. You can follow me on Twitter at jnoonan1307 and Celtics blog and Grizzly Bear Blues. Basketball is kind of at a lull right now. USA almost lost to Turkey. Jason Tatum got hurt in that game, so that was really good. My name is John Powell, and you can follow me on Instagram because I deleted Twitter for the remainder of this college football season, thanks to Florida State, <laughs> at aka JP2. That's how bad our football teams are. We're literally going dark. Uh, this has been Charles Javely. You can follow me on Twitter at Charles underscore Javely and at NFL Outsiders. This has been Richard Powell. You can follow me on Twitter at RAPowell90 or contact me through AIM at GolferDude456. <laughs> <laughs> how does nobody – How does when John – if John links his Instagram, how does nobody point out the type of content we can expect on Instagram? It is primetime content. I w- we will tweet out from the Way Too Loud podcast the last Instagram post <laughs> he did. <laughs> and this is uh, this is Chip Javely. You can follow me on Twitter. I don't know why you'd want to, seeing as it's an inactive <laughs> account. But you can follow me on Twitter if you so choose. It's at Jip underscore Javely. <laughs> oh, man. At the engaged man, one, two, three, four. <laughs> All right, everyone. See you guys hopefully to a better, happier next week.